0: This is the Mormon Women Project at www.mormonwomen.com Hello, this is Meredith Nelson. Happy Mother's Day from the Mormon Women Project. We've decided to celebrate the occasion today with a discussion about our Mormon foremothers and about the women featured in At the Pulpit, 185 Years of Discourses by Latter-day Saint Women. It's a book recently published by the Church Historians Press and edited by Jenny Reeder and Kate Holbrook, both historians on the women's history team at the Church History Department. Jenny and Kate join me for this interview, and I hope you enjoy what they have to share. Happy Mother's Day! Kate Holbrook and Jenny Reeder, thank you for joining us to talk about your new book, At the Pulpit, 185 Years of Discourses by Latter-day Saint Women.
1: Thank you. We're excited.
0: So I want to start by reading a quote from the book. This is by Lily Fries, and it was given in 1880. It's on page 70. She says, From our ranks have gone to new fields of labor and will still go, women whose names will be honored as far as the sound of the gospel can reach. The seeds of their success and honor were planted when they made their first feeble attempt to speak in an organized capacity. So when I read this quote, I asked myself, have their names been honored? I had never heard of Lily Freeze until I read At the Pulpit. <laughs> so, and actually quite a few of the other women in there. So I feel like this book is part of a fulfillment Of Lily's prophecy that these women's names will be honored and I also feel like it's time to honor their names is that part of the motivation behind this book for you absolutely I think we
1: have a good mix of names of people that have been known and names of people that have not been known and I love that that's one of my favorite things but I think and in fact, I kind of felt that as I was, especially with the 19—I would say it's 19th century up through 1910, 20. And I really felt that as I was researching, especially the women that I didn't know. Um, we'd find a particularly incredible talk by a woman I didn't know, and I felt like she wanted to be known. So, with all the digging for biographical information um i could feel this weird sense of weird but really cool sense of guidance in trying to find her and trying to find who she was and the correct information about her so yeah i think that's a huge huge part of this book
2: it's bit i i think jenny said that beautifully and, and i've noticed i've also felt something like that while i've spoken you know giving a relief society fireside or something about the book it, it's felt very holy to me, like like there were people I couldn't see celebrating the fact that these words were finally uh, reaching a broad audience.
0: Yeah, I, I felt that as I read too, just I didn't want it to end because <laughs> there was so much power in that reading process for me. And I read every footnote, you two, I just, I couldn't resist because they were full of so much good information as well. I, I wanted to focus on another part of Lily Fries' statement. She says, The seeds of their success and honor were planted when they made their first feeble attempt to speak. She says that as though speaking is at the root of service in in the kingdom of God. Um, And you featured several women who were described as shy or as afraid of speaking initially. And it seems like Emmeline B. Wells was fond of commenting on this. She described Mary Isabella Horn as as once having been Afraid of the sound of her own voice, um, and, and I don't think that's the only one she commented on. But no, yeah, no. <laughs> women such well, as Mary Isabella Horn, Eliza R. Snow, Zina D. H. Young, Sherry Dew—they're all described in the book as as starting out shy and then growing in their confidence as speakers. So I'm wondering if you can comment on that pattern.
1: Yeah, and I think first of all, one of the reasons why Emmeline is so often commenting on that is because, as editor of the Women's Exponent. She took careful care and note, and knew many of these women. And she, part of her charge as editor of the Women's Exponent, given to her by Brigham Young, was to keep a history of the women of the church and to get their biographies and to and to show what they had done to contribute to the building of the kingdom. So I love that, and I love that. I I think we need to make the Women's Exponent more accessible to To members of the church and scholars as well today, but second of all, yes, I do think it's very um, common for people, especially in the 19th century, to express um, concern or fear of speaking out loud. And I think even today, we like Sherry Dew is one on that list that you gave. We 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 don't like talking. I know Virginia Pierce just spoke in women's conference this last weekend, and she talked about how. She's given over a hundred talks, but she really does not like speaking. And I I just think not only is that sort of a universal fear, wasn't it Jerry Seinfeld that said people would rather um, die than give a public speech? (laughs) Um, But I do think in the 19th century, women were like the Bible said, and even before the 19th century, um, as was said in the Bible, that women should keep silent. And, of course, there were a few women who did speak up and speak out and expound and exhort. And Emma Smith was given the charge in 1830 to expound the church and exhort the scriptures. And the revelation ends with, this is, this is unto all. So I think it was a process of learning how to open up their voices. And I think the Relief Society especially really helped create a location where women could be with women and could feel comfortable doing that or the Female Institute of Health in 1852, where Phoebe Angel speaks. Um, and I think slowly, these women became a, uh, more comfortable with speaking, even if it was like in the form of discussion, to more of public speaking in front of an audience. Um, and, they, and they just, they learned and they realized they had something important to say.
0: Hmm. So it was it was a responsibility that they felt based on the revelation in D&C 25. I think it was. Hmm.
2: They also had church leaders ex- encouraging them to speak. That included Eliza R. Snow, and it included Franklin D. Richards, who in the book, The First 50 Years of Relief Society, we have a copy of a talk that he gave at a Weber Stake Relief Society, where he said, I know that some of you are reticent and don't want to speak up. And he said, I know it's sometimes just because you're naturally shy, and sometimes it's because you don't want other people to make fun of you. And I know that there are men who make fun of women who step into the public sphere. And then he said, men who do that are depriving themselves of blessings, and they're depriving the entire church of the full blessings that God has in store for us. So when we neglect women's voices... Uh, we we do so uh, to the detriment of the entire church.
0: Oh, I love that. That's that actually brings tears to my eyes. What a great <laughs> what a great quote and example of a leader. a <laughs> terrific, terrific man. Yeah. Uh, so, can we talk about female authority in speaking? You mention in the book that at the founding of the Relief Society, Joseph talks about Emma's calling to quote teach the female part of the community. No, so that's not the wording we find in DNC 25, which simply calls Emma to exhort the church, as you said earlier. Most of the the talks featured and At the Pulpit were given to female audiences. And I noted that as late as 1975, Belle Spafford felt the need to justify to her mixed audience why she would talk about women's issues in the presence of men. And these days, LDS women commonly speak to mixed audiences in church at firesides. In broadcasts and in general conference we're used to that although we're still having conversations about what it means and whether it matters that women speak in general sessions of conference but here's my qu- my history question did early members and leaders of the church limit the responsibility of women to preach only to female audiences
1: that's a really good question and we have we have examples of like mother smith lucy Mack smith who speaks at the at General Conference in 1845 to an audience of men and women. Um, and we have, and she also speaks at like ward groups, we know that we didn't include in the book. Um, her talk actually at the very first talk is to men and women as well. So I think it just sort of um, depends. Um, I'm trying to think of a a better answer to that.
2: I I think you're right. Um, One one thing that in the very early days, church was different than we think of church now, that most often it was just church leaders who spoke, and it was male leaders who spoke at those meetings. So we did have women speaking less often than men at mixed meetings, and, and there was a long period where it was almost always men if it was a more formal meeting. And then women would tend to participate in those mixed congregations if it was something like a testimony meeting or a cottage meeting.
0: Well, I'm going to I'm going to stick with with Franklin Richards perspective on this. That is <laughs> <that, laughs> a good one. Yeah, that we need we need to hear from the women as men and women together, that we all have something to sh- share with each other. And um, I think most members of the church see conference talks by at least priesthood holders as authoritative as something you could cite when teaching a lesson or even as a supplement to scripture. Um, What can you share about how the women featured in At the Pulpit viewed their own authority?
2: Meredith, we saw that the sources of authority from which women spoke, there were multiple sources of authority. And sometimes it's just the Spirit of God fills them and the people that they that are listening to the talk feel the Spirit of God. and And that is the primary authority by which they speak. But often there are overlapping sources of authority. So the Spirit of God is there, but maybe there's also a calling that makes them particularly qualified to speak to that congregation at that time. Other women spoke not from any kind of a calling, not because they were on the Relief Society General Board, but because they had professional expertise that was particularly germane uh, to the topic they were speaking to. Um, And then some spoke from life experience. Irina Kratzer was a convert. She first learned of the church when she was living in Siberia in the early 1990s. And uh, so when she speaks, she speaks from the Background of her own personal experience of knowing what it was like to, to live under Soviet rule with no sense of God and a muddy sense of right and wrong that she feels the church really clarified for her. And then coming to a sense where she has uh, a lot of clarity about how to lead a life that is beneficial to others and that is personally fulfilling as well. So there, there's a lot of authority that women bring to bear. And that was a question that we thought a lot about as we were writing the book, and something that uh, was very convenient for for us, and I think um, divinely convenient, um, is that both Elder Oaks and President Nelson gave important talks while we were in the process of writing this book about women's authority and about how women have authority to speak in this church, and we need to honor. We need to honor women's authority to speak, and women themselves need to honor their own authority and speak and and stand and participate.
1: I think one really good example of that in the first half of the book is Jane Nyman. She was destitute in Nauvoo and was a widow twice and um, required the assistance of the Nauvoo Relief Society but then when she applied for membership at the Navajo Relief Society, she was denied membership, actually, because of the activities of her daughters getting caught up in some um, nefarious events at the time. Anyway, she never never left the church, and that never drove her away. And years later, when she crossed the plains with another daughter and lived in Beaver and was the first Relief Society president in Beaver. And after she was released from that, she gives a short sermon in her Beaver Relief Society but just demonstrates this this experience that she is yearning to share, and that is that we should spread a a mantle of charity and not not, um, judge each other, but to love each other and speak kindly of each other. And she says that exactly from her own personal experience. So that's actually another thing that I really love And then it really shows up, particularly in the 19th century talks that are much shorter than the later talks in the book, is the biographical information, which tells us more about these women and gives us so much more insight into who they are and what they're saying and why they're saying it, because they've had such
0: concrete experience with that. Hmm, I love that story. And wasn't it? Lucy Max Smith, in one of the earlier discourses that talks about braiding sources of authority.
1: Well, that actually is a term that
2: Kate came up with, and I love it. Oh, okay. Um,
1: right, Kate?
2: Yeah, and somebody tried to edit it out, so thanks, Meredith. That's <laughs> my favorite line. <laughs> but we do use it
1: to describe Lucy as not only as the mother of the prophet Joseph Smith but also as the leader of this company of saints that are traveling from New York, from Colesville, New York to Kirtland, Ohio. um, And as an example of her own personal testimony of God and Jesus Christ and their ability to perform miracles when needed.
2: Can I share one more? So there's a talk that I don't want people to miss. We had to put a few talks uh, online only so they're in the ebook and some of them are online available now for free. And, and one of them is by Julie Willis. and I don't want people to miss out on that. And Julie Willis is one of the women who is speaking from uh, both the authority of the spirit and the authority of her professional expertise. She has a PhD in geology and she's the chair of the geology department at BYU Idaho. And her, discourse was particularly relevant, I think, for Latter-day Saints today, and particularly young people with a lot of questions. She talks about how questions are good, how questions are how we grow, and that her whole career is built on the ability to ask good questions and carefully pursue the answers and know when to give some space to that process and to know when to continue on with that process. Uh, So her life has been what really fed, but also feeds her spiritual life.
1: It's a fantastic talk. We really wish we could have included it in the the hard copy of the book, but we're so happy that at least it appears in online.
0: Yeah, so tell me about the online resources correlated to the books. Is, I, it sounds like not the whole book is available online. Is this at the Church History website? Yeah, the Church
1: Historians Press website. So there's a website dedicated to At the Pulpit. And um, it will slowly include over time include all of the talks and make them accessible to everyone that are in the book. But it also includes a few um extra talks. Um, the book is pretty big. Um so we had to take out some some talks just to make it more accessible um to buy and to use. Um so there are a few really short talks from the 19th century. Some that I love that just, that they just had like one line that was super cool. Um, so it was easier to put that online. We want, but we want people to use that as well.
0: That's great to know about. And I hope it doesn't mean we won't get a second volume. <laughs> sometime. <Yeah. laughs>
2: um, and, and it'll be within the year. It'll be by next March that the whole book will be available online for free.
0: That is amazing and generous.
2: And something really exciting that
0: one of our colleagues Ben Godfrey has
2: been able to track down recording voice recordings of many of the talks as they were originally given. I think starting back in like the 1930s maybe. I know he has the 1940s. So if you go online and and find a talk, you can click on it and um, hear hear it hear the original recording, which is really exciting. You know, written, talks are written to be heard. So
0: it's yeah. exciting to to encounter yeah. them
2: that.
0: Oh, I am so excited about that. <laughs> yeah, it definitely would. Um, it's a different experience, of course, hearing it versus reading it. Um, I will put a link to the website on the blog post with oh, this podcast great. so people can go there. Um, tracking back to our discussion about authority, I found the titles of the early women leaders interesting because Obviously, they've evolved, and the organizations have evolved over time. Um, But some of the titles that I found scattered through the early part of the book was "leading sisters," "representative ladies," "mothers in Israel," "presidents of the feminine portion of the human race," and there's probably some that I'm missing. (laughs) Uh, So, how have women's titles evolved? And are there others that you can remember that I'm forgetting?
1: Well, there's always also "presidentess," which I love, or, or "elect lady." Part of me thinks that those are really title 19th century esque titles, like sort of Victorian titles. It's books during the night, late 19th century, written by Edward Toolish, called "Women of Mormondom," where he uses such high, flowery language to describe these these early women of the church. Or we get Augusta Joyce Crozier's book representative women of Deseret, which again uses that kind of language. And so part of me really thinks it it's late nineteenth century Victorian language. But when we get to the twentieth century, I think it just becomes sister or sometimes president. But I don't even know that currently the General Relief Society or young women or primary presidencies are called presidents. I'm not sure. What do you think, Kate?
2: I, I had somebody look this up for me a few years ago. And at that time it it was protocol to refer to them as sister. But I do sometimes see uh, highly ranked male church leaders refer to them as president, and I love it when they do. Yes, yes. And Kate, do you have to tell about the mission president? Oh, thank you. One of the titles that, that we were very excited about was Relief Society Mission President. So for the bulk of the 20th century, from the early 1900s until the 1970s, if you were married to a mission president, your title was Relief Society Mission President. And you had specific uh, responsibilities that went along with that title. Most often, women with that title oversaw the Relief Society and primary and young women organizations in the mission. And they coordinated missionary work within the mission uh, with, the, with their auxiliary organizations. Um, so it, it's exciting to hear that there used to be a, a title and specific duties associated with that position.
1: Did you find that those Relief Society mission presidents had any um, jurisdiction over the sister missionaries, or did that all come under the mission, the
2: male mission president? You know, Jenny, that's a good question, and I didn't, I didn't find anything about that. Interesting. That's- interesting. When I was on my mission, my second
1: mission president was Italian, and his wife. I mean, this is in the nineties, but his wife like took over all the work for the sister missionaries and she prayed and received revelation for our transfers and if we had problems we would call her and it was it was and I think I'm sure that was an individual choice but she was a very strong willed, wonderful woman.
0: Um, and I remember in that footnote about the Release Society mission president that there was another interim title before Mission Presidents' Wives no longer had a personal title. What was that? Do you remember Kate?
2: No, I'm blanking on it, but that's it's my responsibility to remember. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> <note>. <laughs> but um, it was I less,
1: remember, Kate.
2: It was it was during the seventies. And during yeah. the seventies is when this title became slowly dismantled because the main mission of correlation was to prioritize priesthood and to get men who had the priesthood to live up to their to their destiny as priesthood holders, and also just to get everybody in the church really thinking about priesthood. So priesthood reporting lines became very important. And I think that's why we lost that title because they were trying to focus on the reporting line going through a priesthood holder, not the broad sense of priesthood that everybody shares, but the narrow sense of priesthood in which you're ordained to a particular office. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that the fact that mission presidents' wives had a title in the past is is illuminating and also promising for us that there's some precedent for that um, because they certainly do play play roles equally important to their husbands as they as they serve, and as you said, Jenny, different different in every mission. Yeah. Uh, right. So I read the book cover to cover, which I I know might not necessarily be the way it's intended to be used, um, but I really do recommend it because I noted. I just watched the church. I've always been aware that the church is an evolving organization and that it, it's an evolving set of organizations and always has been. But I was able to kind of watch it unfold in these little, um, down these little paths. So the titles evolved over time and and the Young Women's Organization evolved and Relief Society evolved. Um, and I also noted that, that some of the themes that were commonly addressed in these discourses, um, some of them have cha- have remained constant throughout the, the church's history, and others have shifted or evolved. Um, and I wonder what you noted or, or what, you've, what themes you feel have been in common throughout our history and maybe what has changed.
1: This is such an interesting question, Meredith, and I'm glad you're asking it because I'd love to hear more about your perspective on that. Um, so our initial goal was to really use talks that were timeless and that doctrine didn't change. For example, we didn't use talks in the 19th century that focused on polygamy or um, historical events because we wanted them to be applicable to um, got- core gospel doctrine. Um, but obviously, some of that will change, and some of the focus on different doctrines will change over time. So that was our initial goal.
2: And then you see how... so. We have women throughout the book speaking about prayer, and I learn a lot from Ann Cannon in her talk about prayer, comparing it to electrical current and the way it connects us with with mm-hmm. God. And then we learned a lot of wonderful things about receiving answers to prayer and the possibilities of that, and also what's out of our control with that from Virginia Pierce in, in her talk on prayer. And the the Anne Cannon talk is a paragraph long and the virginia pierce talk is from a BYU women's conference and you know it was maybe a 40 minute long talk so the the forms are very different but they're still speaking about yeah. prayer
1: yeah and you also have eg jones talking about prayer in 1881 eleanor georgina jones talking about prayer and again it's 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 longer than the ann cannon talk but not as long as the as virginia pierce's talk and it's just interesting to see how people talk changes over time, um, the format in which it's recorded changes over time, and yet they're all talking about the same core doctrine of prayer, and they all recognize how um, how important prayer is and how important it is for women to have a, an individual relationship with God through prayer. Eleanor Georgina Jones talks about how prayer is the state house of knowledge, and Annie Noble talks, her talk is called Knowledge Now, which is definite, and she talks about praying to receive um, an understanding or a revelation of the first vision, and it came to her while she was walking down a road to a cottage meeting in England, Um, but how different people answer prayers in different, or different people receive answers in different ways, and I think that's really powerful too.
0: I had never heard of Eleanor Jones before. Um, no. this, was, this book was my introduction to her, and she's fascinating because she was of mixed race. She had a black father, uh-huh. but she was endowed and did temple work in a time that mm-hmm. um, the temple and priesthood ordinances were closed to um, to black members.
1: Mm-hmm. And her son
0: received the priesthood.
1: Mm. So it's it's interesting. I feel like she kind of, Um, Because all the census, the the plural that I don't know, since I, (laughs) in Utah, she is termed as white. um, But in um, back east, she's multiracial. So I kind of feel like she, I kind of feel like, as you know, we worked so hard to find her and get to know her. um, Because she had such sparse records, which I kind of think says something about her. But I think it also says that she recognized her, her um, privilege of receiving temple ordinances and her knowledge and understanding. Her talk is very well written. You can tell she's very educated. Um, it's very, has very precise language. And um, she, she knew she was, she was um, obligated or, or she had the privilege to receive all of these
2: blessings.
1: And so I love that about her.
2: And Meredith, you haven't heard about her before because Jenny's the one who's brought her to light.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Jenny. Yay! <laughs> We're, yay. We'll, I think we'll, she found me. <laughs> we will await the next book by Jenny on yeah. Eleanor Jones. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Great. It's going to yeah, take think, a lot of work
0: because we put in
1: everything we
0: found. <laughs> yeah, interesting. I hope that we can turn out more about her. What a fascinating mm-hmm. member of the Early Relief Society.
2: But one of the things that was really exciting for me in in talking about how discourses change over time is that I could be just as excited and just as motivated by a talk in, I don't know, 1893 as I could by one in 1993. One of our criteria was that that we would include a talk in the book, is that when you finish reading it, you would just f- feel like you wanted to run and post something on Facebook or call your mom or your friend and, and tell them about what you just read, and to see how those early talks could speak to us just the way the later talks could was, I don't know, it, it, it felt really important.
0: It, I, I felt that way too. I have as many underlinings and stars in the first half as I do in the second half, and maybe even a few more because because of the surprise of how they spoke to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some of the themes that, that carried across... To me, where especially as the Relief Society was concerned, were having unity, being unified as women, and accepting and loving each other, not gossiping about each other, mm-hmm. um, avoiding contention, and and just bringing every woman under the umbrella of the Relief Society as an equal member. And that you know that changed too. That mm-hmm. if, I didn't realize this that until was it the '70s Relief Society membership was not automatic for every Female member of the church. Before that, women—what wh- would they do? Would they apply to be members of the Relief Society and then yeah, get accepted or denied? Yeah,
1: yeah, that's what happened to Jane Nyman, and I've, and mostly in the in when the Relief Society came to Utah in the fifties uh, and sixties, mostly they would accept everyone. Like I can't really think of a time where they didn't accept. And I mean, there's a few exceptions.
2: Mm-hmm. But, but it was still something beyond regular church membership that you did. It was seen as part of church membership, but an optional part. So you could opt in or opt out.
1: Kate, do you have any talks in the second half that are like a very local, specific congregation? It seems like as we get closer to the second half, the talks come to larger audiences.
2: I, th- I think that's mostly true. Uh, Judy Brummer gave her talk to a s- specific audience she's given that talk hundreds of times.
1: Right. We have some of them, like Sarah Kimball, talking to the National Council of Women. So that's a large group, and it's a non-Mormon group. Um, we have Bathsheba Smith, who's addressing the Relief Society in general. And some of the later ones are at, like, young women's conferences. But the earlier ones would be to specific Relief Societies,
0: mm-hmm. you know, in a
1: very local. That's where they had to speak and tell, like, they developed a central board of Relief Society and Young Women, and um, they started conjoint conferences with young men and young women, but that's that was where they had to speak, mm-hmm. and then you get these bigger audiences, um, General Conference and BYU Women's Conference and and other incredible opportunities, Relief Society Conferences.
2: And and devotionals at BYU for yes the first several decades, uh, women weren't speaking at BYU devotionals, and then and then they began.
0: Mm, I didn't know that. That's interesting too. Yeah, I imagine that the pool of talks you had to draw from in the last few decades was so much bigger than the pool you had to draw from from the earlier church, and and it, and you drew those from publications like the Women's Exponent, from uh-huh. Relief Society meeting minutes. And uh-huh. e- even from handwritten manuscript newspapers published by small ward organizations, which I found yes. totally fascinating that these existed <laughs> because I was born right. in, the, in the age of correlation. And right. and so to think of, you know, all these little wards and young women's organizations and Relief Society organizations printing their own publications is really interesting to me.
1: Yeah, me too. I, I just wrote an article about it for Utah Historical Quarterly. So I think it's a fascinating opportunity for young women to sort of, sort of follow the footsteps of their mothers um, in creating, with the Women's Exponent, in creating their own um, local newspaper.
0: Tell me a little bit about the Women's Exponent. You said you want, you're want you hoping that it can be made more publicly available.
1: Yeah, there's so much richness in it. And like I said, Brigham Young gave Eveline Wells, who is the second editor of the Exponent, sort of a charge to To keep women's history in their biographies, and I think one of the richnesses of the Exponent is the obituaries, and I love that you can you can find those. Like I, whenever I go looking for a specific item in the Exponent, I always get sidetracked because mm-hmm. I like to see what's around it and read these obituaries of these women I've never heard of or. Um, uh, the other thing that I love about the exponent is women would write in their reports of their ward or stake relief societies to the exponent, and so you get this really great conglomeration not only of relief society and Young women information, but also this correspondence with the larger world, with the Suffrage Association and the and the National Council of Women, and it's just an incredible. Um, and then you, of course, you get you know, the typical recipes and editorials and instructions on how to dress um, modestly or braid hats or, you know, very local historical events.
2: The, the Relief Society magazine picked up a lot of that role um, when it replaced the woman's exponent. And it was a really important source for us in the middle 20th century for finding out information about the speaker's because a lot of the speakers served on a general board, and uh, when they joined the board, they would write this biography of them. And and that's something I've been so sad that we don't have anymore. We have very short biographies when a woman takes a new high church office um, in in the church news, but it's a very different biography than something that's a couple of pages that tells us about her family, her educational background, her professional background, what her parents were like, all all these rich pieces of information that really give you a sense for who she was.
0: And so the Women's Exponent and the Relief Society magazine, where are they available? I mean, is it is that something you've got to go down to the Church History Library to view?
1: No, actually you um can find them online. BYU Library has an online collection of uh, um exponent And I think it's hard to use, but it is there. And then there's on archive.org, there's a collection of young women's journals. I would say that archive.org is easier to use than the BYU library website. I understand that the church is trying to make the women's exponent more accessible.
0: That would be wonderful. And I know yes. you mentioned in a previous interview that um, that there is an effort underway to make Relief Society meeting minutes available as yes. well, which is yes. super exciting. We
1: are really excited about that. Um, but we're still working on it, and we want to make it um, an, an opportunity for women to participate in transcribing and indexing and being involved in actually getting the website, the index up, the database up. It's a gargantuan project.
2: And I think that people who end up volunteering and helping us to digitize these Relief Society Minute Books are, are going to have their socks knocked off. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the experience of reading minutes from a, a meeting and getting a feel for then this person said this and then this person said this, it it puts you, it's like a, a means of time travel. It's just Mm -hmm. it's really moving
1: and then like when we're we have plans to attach it to family search so right now um as a result of first 50 years you can look up on family search to see if you are related to anyone in the Navajo Relief Society which I am and I was I had no idea Hmm. um but you can also we're we're working with family search so you can look up your great great grandmother or whoever and see what she said and in the Wellsburg Relief Society or what she donated or, you
0: know, things like that. Mm, That's really exciting. Um, You you acknowledge in the introduction of the book that most of the speakers featured in At the Pulpit are these women from Nauvoo, from Utah, mostly white women, although there are several women of color and several Europeans featured as well. Can you Mm -hmm. comment on what else the Church History Department is doing to address our global history and, or what is the next step to highlighting the stories and theologies and testimonies of Mormon women in other regions of the world?
2: Meredith, so i um, start by emphasizing how hard we worked to get international voices into the book. And, and the reason there isn't more is because more are not in the historical record. Mm-hmm. We just couldn't find records of them. And so the most important step is for people all over the world to keep a journal, or write a memoir, (laughs) or or understand that the everyday events of their lives are important and worth saving. And now that we do have areas now, instead of having all church history documents sent to Salt Lake City, we have different areas in the world where people are collecting for that particular area, so if you, you know, there's one for Africa, there's one for Europe, there's one for Asia. Um, so we think that, and then there are local people called to be the historians for that area and to encourage the recording of oral history interviews and other other things for that area. So we're hoping we'll have a much uh, broader source base, thanks to this decentralization of um, church history archives.
1: With the okay. history.lds.org, which is our as our, as our department website, we've been able to highlight stories of incredible women and men from around the world. Um, there's a feature on Julie Bremmer, who's in the, in, at the pulpit, but there's also a feature and a video for Julia Mavambella in South Africa. That's an incredible story. And um, quite a few, we plan on quite a few others, um, a woman in India and uh, a woman in, Oh shoot! I can't remember where she is. Asia, somewhere in Asia. Um, but it's really exciting to see these little snippets pop up and to recognize that it's so much more than the the Mormon corridor or the Wasatch Front. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I will. I, I I love that new resource online. It's just fantastic for for teachers and for um, the average member. And I'm going to put a plug in for the Mormon Women Project because we are a, an international platform. We've, yeah. we've featured women from dozens of countries. And um, so I hope it's one place that, that acts as a venue for the global voice of the yes, church and absolutely. the women in the church. So this this book left a really deep mark on me. And I want to thank you personally for the rich footnotes and for not cropping any of Francine Bennion's discourse because it was long and so wonderful. That's an amazing one, I think. So how how did editing this book impact you both personally, and which speakers or discourses spoke most deeply to you?
2: It's a, it's a hard question to answer, because
0: it really does
2: feel like scripture in some ways to me, that on a day when I need a particular message, I can go to the book and I can find um, insight on that particular message. Oh, One that I think has a particular appeal for a lot of us living today was by Jutta Busche, a German woman who joined the church in Germany and then she moved to the United States because her husband was a general authority. And she talks about how difficult that culture change was for her. Everybody around her had twice as many children as she did. They were gardening and canning the produce. They were involved in the PTA. She said they were jogging and keeping photo albums and writing in their journals and climbing Mount Timpanogos. <laughs> for, for her, it felt ex- exhausting and it didn't feel like her. But because these were Mormon neighbors who were acting like this, she it caused her to question a little bit what Mormon kind of Mormon was she and was she an adequate Mormon. And so she turns to God and she works out with God what kind of Mormon he needs her to be. And then she says, we are here not to conform and not to perform, but to be transformed by the spirit of God. And I think that's a a message that we, that's something I can say to myself every day and still benefit every day from remembering and practicing. She also talks about the need for honesty. And she says, only as we develop an honest heart do we feel the need for repentance. And that thought about the connection between honesty and repentance was life-changing for me. Um, I realized that sometimes in my own spiritual life, if I'm saying a prayer and I remember some shortcoming I have, my first impulse might be to kind of push it away and, and to pretend it doesn't exist. And And what she taught me in illuminating this relationship between honesty and repentance is to open, open up my whole heart, all of my thoughts in prayer and, and give them to God and, and give them to Jesus. And I feel like that vision of repentance where you're just being completely open every day and bringing it all to the altar of prayer and then letting that bring you peace, bring you rest, help you grow. That's been uh, transformative for me.
1: Um, I have two that I want to talk about. One is Virginia Pierce. Um, She has this little thing, uh, a little thought that she has on a sticky note on her computer, and it says, keep it small, keep it simple, give it time. And she said it's not cross-stretched or embroidered or framed, which I love, but um, I actually made a meme of it for my ward Facebook page because I think it's so important that we don't over do anything, keep it small, keep it simple, give it time. It's such a great way to deal with any issue, you know? And then the other one that I want to talk about that really speaks, spoke to me and continues to speak to me is from Zina Young speaking in the Lehigh Relief Society in 1869. And she's one of those, Meredith, that you mentioned earlier. She starts out, and it's just a paragraph. Um, I'm not accustomed to public speaking, but pleased to look upon the faces of my sisters, which I love. She, She's scared. She's um, anxious, but she loves these women, and she knows them. And she knows them because she says something really specific. If you um, read the minutes of the whole meeting, you see that both Brigham Young and, and Eliza R. Snow are talking about the responsibilities and duties of motherhood, which, of course, is another theme we see throughout the whole book and throughout the whole history of the church in connection with instruction given to women. But because Zaina knows these women in Lehi and she looks out and she sees Rebecca Standring, who is the secretary of this Relief Society and she is unable to have children. And even though the the president and first counselor and second counselor have like a combination of like a million kids, um, And follows with this duty. She says, I would exhort, or this charge, I would exhort you to be faithful in the discharge of every duty. And to mothers, I would say, fulfill your duties to your children, for they are blessings from God entrusted to your care. Then out and sees Rebecca, and she says, And to you, my sisters who may not have children, be comforted. We serve a just God, and if you are faithful to his cause, it will be no less to you. And I love that, because I think it's recognizing not only the diversity of sisters, but recognizing the specific individual women in that crowd and recognizing the power of God, which I think is larger than the charge of motherhood and, the, and, and of that, is, is that God is here to help us and comfort us and guide us and be with us.
0: And that just really speaks to me in a very powerful way. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that. I just want to encourage every listener to pick up this book. It is an essential addition to the LDS Library, and hopefully will be followed by many more volumes. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much, Jenny, and thank you, Kate, for joining us today. If you enjoy this podcast and the hundreds of interviews with modern Mormon women in our online library, please share with your friends and consider making a tax-deductible donation at www.mormonwomen.com to help us fund interview transcription and website support.